Time Machine with Trish and Mike. I'm Mike. I'm Trish. And we're glad you're with us for today's adventure. How are you doing today, Trish? I'm doing good. Welcome to our third going into fourth week of January. Yes, and we made it. It is. It is. It's hard to believe, but we are finally, we're closer to the end of January than the beginning of January. Yes, that is a positive thing. Which means we are almost one twelfth of the way through the year that is 2021. Mm-hmm. Or if some people are counting the 13th month of 2020, I don't know. You know, it just feels that way sometimes. It does <laughs> feel that way. We, we had such high hopes, but you know, hey, we can turn it around. It's still early in the year. There's still 11 months left. We have yes. plenty to be optimistic about. Positive thinking. We will attract yes. what we desire. That's right. Uh, speaking of positive thinking, a huge thank you to Amber for our new show art that you have seen by now. If you're listening to our podcast, uh, you see Trish and me in the time machine. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a big shout out to Amber. And she can find her on Instagram at Kohaku underscore dragon. That's at K-O-H-A-K-U underscore dragon. She was lovely enough to draw that wonderful art for us and so if you're looking to get anything commissioned by all means please reach out to her and tell her that the time machine sent you there it's pretty darn cute i love it well you know something else that people love is especially back in the 80s and 90s was pro wrestling and on january 24th 1984 hulk hogan won his first wwf world heavyweight championship and there's a whole backstory to the name hulk hogan that a lot of you probably don't know I was fascinated when you brought this story up. I couldn't believe it. And I, I grew up with two older brothers who loved wrestling, so I'm very familiar. But hearing the the inside facts regarding the name and the whole situation is very interesting. So let us know, Mike. What did you find out? Okay, then, Trish. I will tell you what I found. See, because we've now heard the name Hulk Hogan so many times that a lot of people just instantly, you know who it is. But mm-hmm. back when he originally debuted in the WWF, which is a whole another interesting topic we can get into, how they transitioned from WWF to WWE, as most people know them as now. Back in 1979, he was known as the Incredible Hulk Hogan. And, well, eventually Marvel Comics caught wind of this name, and they were like, hey, um, yeah, about the whole Incredible Hulk stuff... Hmm. Let's have a... I don't know if we know this, but <laughs> we need to have a conversation. But, you know, to their credit, Marvel Comics and the WWF were pretty cool. They were able to work out a very unique deal. WWF could not trademark the name Hulk Hogan because Marvel owned the rights to using Hulk as a character in, you know, uh, comic books and TV and what have you. So they worked out an agreement. Marvel actually owned a license to Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, and the Hulkster. And WWF licensed it through Marvel. Okay, so they had to come to this agreement on all three names? Yes, they came to an agreement on all three names. In fact, if you go back to you know any WWF show from the 80s, at the bottom, in the copyright, 
you'll see a credit to Marvel Comics registered trademark Hulk Hulk Hogan, the uh, Hulkster, Hulkamania, all that are registered trademarks of Marvel Comics. See, that's so interesting. So then what was the actual contract? Like, what did Marvel get, for, I guess, from Hulk Hogan? Uh, money. That's what they got. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, Always that nice. Was, Always a good yes. thing. If you're ever in a contract situation, money is usually going to make one of the parties happy. And okay, well, how much money? <laughs> well, we're we're going to get into that. So, <laughs> the they came to an agreement in 1985. Interestingly enough, they actually signed the contract a week before the first WrestleMania. Oh, okay. So they were setting so, it up for his win, almost. You know. Right. Well, he was already champion at that point. He so Hulk wins the title in January of '84. Okay. The first WrestleMania is March of 85. Okay, now I get the timeline. So okay. so it's like he he was there for a while, then he went off back to the AWA in Minnesota for a couple of years, then they came back when Vince McMahon, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, who is the Vince McMahon that you know, took mm-hmm. over from his father. Okay, okay. So that's a whole, the, the whole history of the WWE, F, WWF, depending how far back you want to go, can be interesting maybe we'll get into one day so when vince mcmahon vincent kennedy mcmahon the vince mcmahon that most people listening to this know Mm -hmm. when he took over he that's when he blew up wrestling into a big national thing as opposed to a regional thing and that's how wrestlemania came to be so on so forth so as part of the deal with marvel comics they retroactively dated it to july of 1984 the agreement was in place for 20 years or until terry balea which is hulk's real name ceases to be involved in wrestling. Some of the clauses in the contract included that if they used the word Hulk, they had to use the word Hogan. So you couldn't just say Hulk. You had to call him Hulk Hogan, or you could call him Hogan, or you could call him the Hulkster or whatever, but you couldn't just say, here's Hulk. Hulk. Hmm. In any sort of marketing or logo or advertising, the name Hulk could not be bigger than Hogan. So either Hogan was bigger or they were the same size you could not try to Mm -hmm. imply that it's just hulk any sort of logo or color scheme that was used for hulk hogan could not be green or purple so they limited the color specifically away from their character's colors exactly so that's why red red and yellow primarily became the colors of hulk hogan there was a a little bit in the mid 80s where they kind of did some blue and white stuff but for the most part yeah i think most people it's the red and yellow is the stereo Yeah, like if I say Hulk Hogan, you're thinking red and yellow. Yeah. So as part of their payout, this is where this gets fun. Uh, Actually, there was one other clause. They could not make a Hulk Hogan comic book. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. You think they'd want to kind of cash in on that and have it kind of bleed into the other, you know, just to kind of get attention to them? Well, but that's when you're competing with Marvel, especially back in the mid 80s. Comic books were their big bread and butter and that would have been competition right. to them they could use an image of hulk as a like in a coloring book or like a storybook or something but you couldn't make a dedicated comic book series with him see in my brain's just thinking if you sell lots of comic books they're going to get royalties from it so but you're right i mean it is competition one thing he was allowed to do because at the time in the mid 80s there was a hulk hogan cartoon show i do remember that Oh, that triggered a memory. (laughs) (laughs) Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling Connection. Yeah. So that was permitted because they had already been working on that 
prior to this deal. So as far as payout goes, because it's all about money, Marvel received nine-tenths of one percent royalty on all merchandise sold. So basically we're talking nine-tenths of a penny or a cent. Um, Which doesn't seem like a lot, but... It doesn't seem like... Do they have... They have cents in Canada, right? We... we, I mean, we used to have pennies. They phased it out um, in the last couple of years. I can't remember the actual date of when they took pennies out of circulation. So what's like the smallest denomination of coin? So the smallest denomination of coin now is five cents a nickel. A five a nickel. Okay. And you could yeah. you call them nickels? Yeah, we call them nickels. Oh. Okay. So. so we have a queen on one side and a beaver on the other. That's Canada. All you need is a maple That's leaf Canada. and a flag and uh you'll be you'll be in business. <laughs> um so yeah, nine tenths of a penny doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking a lot of merchandise and wrestling it adds up everywhere it adds up very quickly so like say out of a hundred dollars they're mm-hmm. making 90 cents okay. okay so you know you extrapolate that out you a thousand dollars you're getting nine bucks again doesn't sound like a whole lot but when you start getting into millions your yeah. nine tenths of a penny starts becoming thousands for basically nothing other than licensing your name that's yeah. easy money for marvel like you're not doing anything, you're just collecting the check. Good for them. Good deal. Hope, they, hope they had a good accountant to keep up with all that. And Marvel at, would receive a hundred dollars for every match that Hulk Hogan participated in. Right, and when you're thinking how many matches he was in per week, oh again, yeah, that adds up. Absolutely, because back then they were running three hundred nights a year. Sometimes doing you know double shots on weekends, like you'll do a matinee and then you'll do somewhere else that evening. So. You could easily be making, if you're Marvel, you're easily making $1,000 a week, probably. Yeah, again, doing nothing. Just doing, just licensing, right. So I grew up with wrestling, obviously, and my brothers were big fans. We would watch it all the time, and they had the action figures, right? Like, we had the Hulk Hogan, those rubberized, like, 12-inch figures. We had a few of Mm -hmm. them. But I personally don't know. Did Hulk... Did he last the 20 years contract or did he retire out of wrestling before the 20 years? He winds up leaving in the early 90s. He winds up leaving the WWF. He says he's going to retire. He goes off and he starts getting involved in making movies and TV shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way in the 90s, and I haven't been able to pin down exactly when it was, he goes to Marvel and he negotiates his own deal and acquires the rights himself. So he owns the trademarks now to Hulk so Hogan. And stuff. Okay. So he, he winds up getting them. And so that's why you see him on other programming and stuff. Now he is, can be referred to as Hulk Hogan. Uh, like okay. back in the you know mid two thousands, he had the reality show Hogan knows mm-hmm. best and everything like that. So you can get into, he can use his name for other ventures. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So he did. So. Okay. I was always, yeah. I, I was curious about that. As soon as you brought up the 20 years, I was like, really? But I don't think he was in wrestling for 20 years. Well, at the time when they wrote the contract, they, I don't think he planned to be in wrestling 20 right. years, you know, but. I mean, 20 years of wrestling on your body. That's like hard on your body. Oh yeah. And he's had like eight, nine back surgeries or something oh. over time because of, because his big finishing move for anybody listening that doesn't know was a leg drop. So imagine right. jumping up in the air Landing flat on your butt, three hundred nights a year, over and over, and like that will jar your spine and your hip and everything all out of whack. And yeah, yeah, no, that adds up over time. Yeah, so did the money. So 
Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Well, Hulk may have been the king of wrestling. I think you have a, a king uh, with a very interesting <sighs> backstory to tell us a about. Very interesting backstory is right. So um, I'm already, I'm going to apologize before I even start because I am a huge Tudor buff. I have read everything about the Tudors. I've watched a lot of documentaries and shows and it's just, I don't know, whatever it is, I'm really fascinated. So this is a very important date in history because we're going to be looking at when King Henry VIII ends up marrying his second wife. Now, in order to understand why it's so significant, this marriage to Anne Boleyn, who um, made famous in, in the other Boleyn Girl movie, we have to look at actually how Henry became king and his marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. So, you know, divorce, killed, died, sister, killed, survived. These are all the wives of King Henry VIII of England. King Henry was never actually supposed to be king of England, right? A lot of people forget the fact that he had an older brother. Henry's older brother, Arthur, is actually groomed for the position of king. His brother at two years old is actually betrothed to Catherine of Aragon, who is the youngest daughter of the joint Spanish sovereigns, King Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. So they, they had a joint kingdom and they each ruled their own kingdoms, which is already, that's already another fascinating story to look at. At 15, Henry's brother marries the 16-year-old Catherine and they go off to their home in Ludlow Castle to start a very happy life together, one would assume. Although a few months later, a sweating sickness is going to sweep through the area and they're both going to become very sick. And Catherine recovers, but Arthur, who's never really had good health, he ends up passing away. So you're like, what happens next? What happens next? <laughs> King Henry VII, the father of Arthur and King Henry VIII, he's going to rule England for another seven years uh, until then his eventual death. During the seven years, Henry is thrown into basically cram school to learn how to be king because he had kind of gallivanted off and done his own thing. So he's going to learn how to govern. What about Catherine? What about Catherine? So poor Catherine is stuck in England, right? Uh, there's a disagreement over her dowry. Her parents won't receive her back in Spain until the money is sent. And England doesn't want to pay for a princess that no longer has any ties to England. They keep her around for a little bit just to make sure if the marriage had been consummated, if she had become pregnant, then maybe there would be an heir to England. But that doesn't pan out. So she languishes basically until Henry VIII comes along and saves her, always seeing himself as a very gallant hero. He loved romanticism and, and knightly, courtly love. Hence the six wives. Hence the six wives, right? He's so romantic and steadfast in his love. Um, but he takes this path and, he, and he's very much, um, he was a defender of the, the Catholic faith and he had had a lot of education in the faith and the different doctrines of the church and the Bible and all that. So he takes to heart this passage uh, that states, if a brother dies childless, then you should marry your brother's wife and bear children on his behalf. So it's in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 25, verse 5 through 10. So Henry goes to the Pope and gets a papal dispensation, granting him the ability to marry his brother's ex-wife. Catherine confesses and publicly announces that her marriage was never consummated. So she's like, it was never a done deal. Arthur had been sick. So the two go and get married on June 11th, 1509. Things are lovely. Again, we have this, you know, you should go off and just have a wonderful start to your life. But 
we know that's not really going to happen. So what do you think, Mike, is the, is the next part in our story? What are you predicting, considering we know the outcome? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to guess at some point um, this marriage gets consummated. So this marriage gets consummated right away. Almost immediately, nine months later, Catherine has a child. Don't waste any time there, old Henry. Henry found Catherine to be, you know, this great prize that he's won. So she gives birth, but tragedy hits again. Catherine ends up giving birth to a stillborn daughter. Mm. Henry, of course, is upset, but, you know, he's like, okay, we, we had one child. We can try again. And he wastes no time. And a year later, Catherine gives birth to a healthy boy named Henry. Tragedy hits 52 days after the little prince is born, he ends up passing away from unknown reasons. So she's lost her original husband, a daughter, and a son at this point. Oh, while also being abandoned by her parents for like seven years. And she's 23? She was 23 when they got married in 09. And she has the little boy in 1511. Okay. She's had a pretty rough five-year stretch here where where life has not turned out the way she planned. You know, as a little girl growing up in, in Spain, where it's nice and warm and you're a princess, and Spain was very lavish, you get sent over to England at a young age, it's cold, it's rainy, you have a sickly husband, you're abandoned, you don't have your own people or culture. She's had a hard go. Yeah, sounds like it. Tell me it gets better. I would like to tell you it gets better, Mike. <laughs> but she, she is the living embodiment of 2020 is what she is at this she, point. <laughs> Yeah, she should just be like our symbol. And uh, I love her because she just keeps going. She just keeps praying. And she's like, you know, God will take care of me. God will bless us. Like she's very positive thinking for all this tragedy. In 1513, for a third time, she becomes pregnant. And a third time, she goes into premature labor and loses another baby. Mm. In 1514, she's going to become pregnant for a fourth time and again deliver a stillborn son. So Henry is now starting to get very concerned, right? Thankfully for Catherine, this poor woman who suffered so much hardship, she's going to conceive and finally deliver a healthy baby girl named Mary in February 18th, 1516. Two years later, Henry is again trying, right? Okay, great, healthy baby girl, but we need that boy. Two years later, she's going to deliver her last child, another little girl who only lives for a few hours. So Mike, you are a king. You are in need of an heir. You've been married for nine years at this point. You have one living child, a female. Mm -hmm. Right. Who cannot be king. Who cannot be king, right? Right. Who will divide your power amongst whatever king she ends up marrying or prince she ends up marrying. The best doctors in your whole country are basically telling you that your wife is no longer able to bear children. What's going on in your head? The way I would approach it and the way he would approach it are probably two different approaches, but I'm also not actually a king and this is not the 1500s <laughs> and we know a lot we have a lot more technology and whatnot available to us now but at the time if i'm having to put myself under his crown i would say you maybe have to consider alternative options because unfortunately the wife of whom he is with is not capable of giving him the said offspring required for kingship That's right, right? There is options. I mean, the law about allowing a female issue to become the ruling monarch actually didn't change until Prince William and um, Princess Catherine had uh, their first child. Of course, Prince, the child was born, Prince George. But Mm -hmm. um, 
that actually wasn't changed until they were about to deliver because they wanted to make sure whether if they had a, a, a female child, it could still just become the ruling monarch. So that literally just changed within the last 10 years. Decade. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So the other re- the other option is you Henry VIII did have sisters who were married and had male issue. So you could allow your nephew to take the crown. Okay. The the real thing is Henry the seventh, Henry's father coming into his power, had to go through a great war. So there was a lot of instability and people didn't want that to happen again. So this is kind of where Henry VIII's obsession about a, a stable heir to succeed him kind of came into play. So in 1520, we have the lovely Anne Boleyn and her sister are going to show up on the scene. Henry has a little dalliance with Mary, the famous other Boleyn girl. Dalliance. Right, a That's dalliance. A good word for it. A little dalliance. Right, to be a little proper. She actually conceives a son for him. Anne, however, is the one that Henry is totally over the moon for. He's greatly attracted to her. She's totally refusing all of his advances. Anne did not want to become a mistress to the king. She saw what happened to other mistresses. She's in love with another courtier. But Henry found this refusal extremely enticing. Right? Remember, he's the king. He's given whatever he wants. So he just finds this super attractive. And she's kind of like, get away from me. Eventually, pressured by the king and her family, who sees this as a great stepping stone to get more power, she is kind of trapped in a relationship with him. So there's this flirtation going on. And she holds off his sexual advances for a very long time. She came up with all kinds of of ways of keeping him, I guess, interested, but not actually becoming a mistress. She was educated in the French court, which was renowned for their flirtations and, and, you know, other wily charms. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's one way of putting it. That's that's a good way of putting it. We'll just leave it there and we'll let you move on. <laughs> so what's going on with Catherine while Henry's having this like flirtation with the Bolins and, and you know, Henry devises a plan to divorce his wife. There had been divorces granted by the, the Pope to other monarchs, so there there was a precedent. Mm-hmm. The Pope, though, refuses to grant him an annulment, right? Uh the fact that he's basically being held prisoner by Catherine's nephew, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, may have had something to do with it. Maybe. I could see where right? he goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is he to do? Well, he goes to Catherine and basically is like, look, you're so pious and generous and, and you know, uh, faith-filled. Why don't you just excuse yourself from our marriage and, and take yourself to a nunnery and, and live the religious life, right? Take up religious orders. And Catherine goes, no, I am your true wife. I am the Queen of England. Not going to happen. We have this daughter. Let's just be happy that God's blessed us and make her the best ruling monarch that we can whenever she gets married. And Henry's not game for that. The Pope's not getting him a, granting him a divorce. So Henry gets another idea. He gets very clever. He's like, I'll just make myself the head of the English church and I'll grant myself a divorce. Well, that's one way to get around it. So with this in mind, on January 25th, which brings us to our date in question, 1533, Henry VIII marries Anne Boleyn. And the desire for Henry to have a male heir is going to change the world forever, of course, as England breaks from the Catholic Church. And then for decades, the country of England is going to be thrown into basically civil strife with Catholics and Protestants trying to play a successor of their, put their, a successor of their faith on the throne. During all those years of trying to obtain a divorce and and keeping the king at advances at bay they are rewarded with what another girl 
another girl, right? Elizabeth I is born, and she's actually going to go on to be usher in the golden age of English history. But at the time, Henry's just like, great, another girl, right? Anne is then sadly going to go on to miscarriage three more times. By 1536, Catherine of Aragon dies. She's alone. She's exiled. Henry had forbidden her from being with any of her friends, from her daughter visiting her. It was actually quite awful. Anne does not have the same uh, soothing ability that Catherine had to ease kind of Henry's temper tantrums. So Henry's already eyeing up another wife. Of Jane course Seymour. he is. Yeah. So although they get married on this date, January 25th, Anne is not going to be on the scene for much longer. Henry's actually going to lay charges of adultery against her. Uh, he claims that she is going to have slept with five other men, her brother being one of them. She's found guilty and executed May 19th. So just a few months later, she's executed by a French swordsman. With his first wife dead, his second wife executed, Henry is like, hey, I'm actually a free man, according to the laws of the church. He marries Jane a mere 11 days later. Well, at least he, he took you know some time to properly grieve. It's not like he married her the next day. Poor Jane Seymour having to go through that, right? Jane is going to go on to have that long-awaited son that Henry desires, but it's going to cost her life uh, as she passes away 12 days after the birth. And then what about the other women that we mentioned at the beginning? Well, after Jane dies, Henry's going to marry Anne of Cleves, a German uh, Protestant, uh, for, to form an alliance. He doesn't like her. He claims she's gross. So he's going to declare her his sister and just move on. He's just like, you're now my sister. She actually makes out the best of all the wives. She gets money and doesn't have to be married to him, who at this point is quite large. He has a, a disgusting sore on his leg that won't heal. He's smelly. It's not great. He then goes on to marry a very young girl, Catherine Howard, who's 19, marrying his 50-year-old self. She's actually going to have an affair with a groom and is executed. She isn't treated as nicely as Anne with the French swordsman. She just has her head chopped off with an axe on the block. Ooh. Yeah. And she's an interesting character. We'll have to get into that another time. And lastly, he marries Catherine Parr. And she's going to go on to outlive Henry and get remarried only to also die following childbirth. Out of all of this, the date of January 25th, uh, 1533 is so important because of course it just brings in all this political and religious strife into Europe. And uh, it's going to go back and forth. When Henry dies, they're actually going to put Catherine's daughter Mary on the throne and she's going to bring Catholicism back to England. She's going to go on to die and Queen Elizabeth I is going to take over and, and bring back Protestantism into England. British history is very, I know we say the word interesting a lot on this show, but just with the, the bit that we got into with King Henry VIII and the whole other side branches of that story we could Ugh. have gotten into with some of the other wives. I mean, it's, it's very interesting is the only way to describe it. <laughs> and complicated. And, and you're like, yes, today's yes. the day he married this, his second wife, and it's interesting. But once you realize the historical and religious impacts of just this one date, it's so important. Yeah. I have a feeling we will revisit the royal yeah. monarchy at some point later in the year. Yeah. Yeah. The whole the whole thing is just so interesting, right? You you think of this king and and how does he get six wives and it's just a very weird and fascinating part of British history. It is. And January 25th was an important day as you said in British history is also an important day really in mankind history because on January yes. 25th 
Alexander Graham Bell in 1915 made the first transcontinental phone call. He called and talked to a friend of his in San Francisco. Which if you think about it, like I still don't even really know how phones work. Like (laughs) the fact that in the 1800s, he's able to just do this. It's like, okay. Like I get how phones work, but you also, you don't, right? It's almost, it's kind of mind boggling when you think about technology and how it all works. Yeah, well, and especially nowadays when you get into cell phones or even, you know, video chatting and whatnot. But yeah. even to just go back to the 80s or something, you pick up a phone, you punch in a number. Okay, you figure this somehow it goes through this wire that goes to another wire that goes to another yeah. wire. Eventually it winds up at the other end of the phone to the person I'm speaking to. What's funny is, I mean, and even just looking at how we're communicating right now, like it's yeah. mind boggling, right? Oh, for but, sure. Um, my mom um, is old enough where she was actually a telephone operator where she would have to like cl- connect the different lines. And in Nova Scotia, you have a lot of people with the same last name. So you have a lot of like Angus Beatons or Angus McDonald, like, you know, McDonald's and McDougal's and all those kinds of Scottish names. And in order to tell each other apart, you end up having nicknames. So when I go home to Nova Scotia and I go to Cape Breton Island and someone asks me like, who are you? I say, oh, you know, I'm Sally Central's granddaughter. Sally Central's not her last name. Her last name's Beaton or was Beaton. But my grandfather, his home growing up was the Central Telephone Station, where you would call Hmm. Central to get connected. And the switchboard operator plugs the line into the extension for you. Yeah, exactly. So she got the name by marrying him. And and so when I go home, that's what I tell people who I am. Like, I don't even use my real last name. (laughs) (laughs) At least it keeps keeps you somewhat anonymous when you're back home. (laughs) Right. And there's a connection with Alexander Graham Bell because he has a home on Cape Breton Island on Ben Brien. And that's not the only Canadian connection to Mr. Bell's life because he was born over in Europe and winds up moving to Canada, as you just mentioned, and ultimately winds up in America. He was actually just born as Alexander Bell. He did not have a middle name. And for his 10th birthday, he asked his dad if he could get a middle name because his older brothers had middle names. But now why he didn't is beyond me. So for his 11th birthday, his dad allowed him to get a middle name and he chose Graham for uh, a gentleman by the name of Alexander Graham, who was a, a Canadian that Bell's father treated because Bell's father, his grandfather and his brother all were involved in speech therapy and oration and stuff because Bell's mother and Bell's wife were deaf. Interesting. I did not know that fact about the middle name. Yeah. So communication obviously was a central part of Bell's life Mm -hmm. and that led him ultimately to invent the telephone. Now there's a sidebar to that to where there's some people who believe that Elisha Gray could, should be credited with inventing the telephone because there's issues with when patents were filed and the technology oh. and the diagram and stuff. But we'll, we'll get into that. But, but Bell is the one that's, you know, officially credited. Interesting. Right. And he was the one who co-founded the American Telephone and Telegraph Company in 1885, which we, of course, now know as AT&T, which in and of itself has a whole history of mergers and acquisitions and what have you that is a yeah speaking unique... of going off on a sub story yes <laughs> yeah much like a telephone lines go off on different extensions this story can go many different ways hmm. so the phone was actually designed to be an assistive piece of technology 
Yes, right? it was designed to be, you know, a communication aid. Fascinating. I believe you have a another invention. Well, if, if we're going to continue on this stream of, you know, inventions that are for the betterment of mankind and looking at issues that people have, we have a big date now in regards to diabetes and insulin. So diabetes is something that's really close to home for me. My mom actually has diabetes and she developed it through each of her pregnancies. So she can develop diabetes gestationally. Gestational diabetes, um, yep. Yeah. And she reverted after my brothers, but after me, she never did. And so I always feel guilty and I just tell her I was too sweet for her and I'm sorry. Oh, right? I like that. So it's like, Sh- sorry, shout mom. Out, shout out to Trisha's mom who who listens yeah. every week. Thank you for listening. He listens every week from Nova Scotia. Yeah. I love, love you, mom. Um, so I'm sorry that I gave you diabetes and that you've, you know, now have to have insulin. But hey, we're glad that insulin is created. So of course, uh, diabetes is when your your pancreas no longer functions properly and you don't develop the right amount of insulin to regulate your blood sugar. Right. And Dr. Frederick Banting, who is going to develop in the insulin that we can actually use, is a big hero for me. He's born near Alliston, Ontario in 1891. He grew up made it into the medical program at the University of Toronto in 1912. He's going to go on to enlist in the army during World War I. And uh, upon his return after the war, he becomes a resident surgeon at the hospital for sick children in Toronto uh, between the years 1920 or 1919 and 1920. And it's during this time that he comes up with this idea of extracting insulin from the pancreas of other animals and, and using it for human consumption. So he's going to work for nine months experimenting on how to successfully do this. And he and his assistant, Charles uh, Best, are going to uh, prepare pancreatic extractions to prolong the lives of diabetes in dogs. So they basically make a dog diabetic and then use this insulin that they've taken to see if they can correct the diabetes in the dog, which was a success. It sounds, you know, awful nowadays. I'm sure PETA would not approve. No, they they would not. But that was back then. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure they treated the dog very humanely otherwise. But, you know, for people who care about animals, it, it can be a little, you know, uh. but they're going to get some aid from another professor at the University of Toronto, Professor John McLeod. And the crude insulin uh, extract was then purified uh, for human testing by James Colip. So these four men are all working together to develop this process for human for human use. And on January 23rd, 1922, the first successful test on a human patient with diabetes occurred when insulin's going to be administered to a very, very dangerously ill boy named uh, Leonard Thompson. So before the invention of insulin, you would have entire wards of hospitals just set up with patients who had diabetes and many of them would be children that had juvenile diabetes and you would basically fall into a diabetic coma you'd be asleep and you would just have parents of these children or you know significant others of these patients just sitting there watching their loved one pass away it was very eerie and awful right just to never wake up from this diabetic coma so leonard's one of these boys and once he's given the insulin injection, he wakes up and he begins to recover. And he's, he's able to successfully be treated with this insulin. And then Banting and McLeod are actually going to go on to jointly win a Nobel Peace Prize for medicine in 1923. So out of the four gentlemen that worked on this experiment, Banting and McLeod are, are the ones that are credited with doing the most. Good. And we're 
thankful for super thankful yeah now you have all kinds of you have long acting insulin and short short acting insulin you can have insulin pumps there's lots of different ways for individuals to get the medicine that they need yeah that's a great thing you know there are yeah you know, diabetes is obviously an issue that we have you know, here in America and Canada as well. And without having a way to inject insulin into people, it is a very effective method in helping to regulate diabetes. Yep. I think it's one of the fastest growing medical concerns in both of our countries. I, th- I think so. I, I don't know the numbers at all yeah. on this, so I wouldn't I'd begin to, to estimate. But yeah, it's certainly is a disease that is on the rise. That mm-hmm. is for sure. Well, we are certainly thankful for their invention because insulin has saved and made a lot of diabetics' lives a lot easier to manage and control their diabetes. And that is something we're certainly thankful for. Another thing we are thankful for, because this story could have had a much different ending, mm-hmm. was the January 24th V-52 crash in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Shortly before midnight, a Boeing B-52 was on a test flight and it was carrying a couple of three to four megaton nuclear bombs on board when the plane broke up in midair. Uh, That's a terrifying scenario. That is a very terrifying scenario. They were attempting to refuel in air. And when the tanker plane tried to connect, he said, Hey, you've got a fuel leak out the wing. And they're like, Oh, this is not good. So the tanker fails. They're like, we're not going to connect to you. And so they were assuming a holding position to kind of burn off some of this fuel before they tried to land back at the Air Force Mm -hmm. Base nearby. The leak continued to get worse and worse. And at one point, it had lost 37,000 pounds of fuel in about three minutes. Holy moly. That's not just a leak. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. So they attempted to return back to the base and they lose control because they can't keep the plane stable because it's just literally starting to fall apart. So the pilot orders the crew to eject, five of which survive either through ejecting or escaping after the crash. Unfortunately, one did not survive his parachute landing and two died in the crash. So that's the unfortunate part of this story. The good part and the thankful part is what about those two nuclear bombs on board? Because that's a big problem. That's like not going to be good. So one bomb was actually found completely intact. Wow. When its parachute deployed, the parachute got caught in the tree. And so the tree actually created like a a buffer? Yeah, it basically caught the... Stopped it from... Stopped it from hitting the ground and detonating. However, at the time, the Pentagon said there was no chance of an explosion, and a Department of Defense spokesperson said the bomb was unarmed and could not explode. However, in 2013, a Freedom of Information Act request confirmed that a single switch out of four on the bomb that did not fire was what prevented that bomb from detonating. Oh my goodness. So even though the the tree caught the bomb basically it still was this close to detonating now do we know why this plane was carrying two nuclear bombs like the only i i don't i would imagine this was just a training mission that they were doing because we're talking uh 1961 so cold war cold war is still a thing um that's the only thing i can figure wow because the air force base was nearby in goldsboro north carolina so it was fairly close to its base. So I would just figure this was probably a training mission right? with live bombs on board. 
So that's one bomb. Yeah, what about the other one? What about the other one? Yeah, that's that's a real good question. So the second bomb crashed into a muddy field at about 700 miles an hour, which is about 1,100 kilometers an hour for our our metric friends. That's fast. Uh, But it did not detonate, which surprised me because you would think something going that fast, just instinct. The only thing I could figure is because it was a muddy field. And it had so much force that it absorbed the impact and drove it down. So the tail of the bomb was actually found about 20 feet below ground, which kind of backs up the theory of it's coming in so fast. It landed in soft ground and it went just penetrated through it due to groundwater flooding in the area. So like when you get deep enough, there's too much water in the soil. Mm -hmm. They were not able to excavate the entire bomb. Now, they were able to remove part of it, but there's part of it still there. It's not the part that's going to explode. They were able to get that part out. But like the part of a bomb that fires that, right, that that trips to make the bomb begin to go off is still actually in the ground. And so there's an easement that doesn't allow anyone to get into that area. Um, Oh, so they have it protected, but Mm -hmm. wow. They worked out a deal with the owner of the land where this Mm -hmm. fell and no current or future landowner can dig or drill any deeper than five feet, nor can that area that 200 foot area around the site be used for anything other than growing crops, timber or pasture. Nice, safe land use. Yes. Had the bomb exploded. Oh gosh. Each bomb, each bomb was capable of releasing 250 times the power of the Hiroshima bomb and would have created a 100% kill zone within an eight and a half mile radius. Wow. Like my brain's going to, of course, the historical footage of the Hiroshima Mm -hmm. bombings. You would think for a training mission... That may, if you're going to use live weapons, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's there's a purpose to using live weapons for training, right? But you think you'd use a, a nuclear bomb with just like a smaller, you know, megaton yeah. detonation happening, just in case, or even just some sort of like small test bomb or something. Yeah, I'm totally with yeah. you on that because that's like why are, that's... why are you testing bombs that are bigger than the ones you dropped on another nation? just gone wow super thankful for that yes and i have another thankful story involving a a nuclear item it's not a bomb but it's a nuclear powered satellite so just like the united states canada has a few territories if you don't know right do you know how many territories we have mike well like i know you have like yukon territory Mm -hmm. um i'm thinking there's somewhere up like Prince Edward Island, is there like some maybe outskirt land islands or somewhere maybe up there? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'll say five. Well, kind of close, right? Okay. Uh, you be, you guys have five. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked it up. So you beat us five to three. We have three territories. Okay. All three are located in, in the northwest. like up, Okay, uh, up, so up like north. your Yukon territory. Yeah. Okay, all right. So... We have uh, the Yukon, which you mentioned. We have the Northwest Territories, and then yes. we have Nunavut. Okay, that one I hadn't heard of. Well, Nunavut's our newest one. It was created April 1st, 1999. 
Oh, um, so it's fairly recent in relative yeah, terms. Okay. In relative history. It, it was part of the Northwest Territories, and then there was a, a land disagreement involving the indigenous people, and it ceded and created its own territory. Gotcha. So where this story takes place now would be considered Nunavut, but at the time it was the Northwest Territories. January 24th, 1978, we have a Soviet nuclear-powered surveillance satellite called the Cosmos 954, and it crashes in Canada's north, um, right where I said uh, nowadays we would say in Nunavut, but uh, historical records will say the Northwest Territories because at the time that's where it was. On the date in question, NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, which is a joint task force between our two countries. Yes, and that's who tracks Santa Claus every Christmas Eve. Tracks Santa every Christmas Eve. We and we we have NORAD's broadcast on CBC Radio, oh, so nice. you can listen in and follow Santa along. Now. NORAD ends up tracking this huge fireball that's streaking across the sky. And the Soviet satellite That was crashed. not Santa Claus. That was not Santa Claus. No, and, and that's not, not something you want to be tracking anytime on your screen, right? No, it's not. It's going to crash near Great Slave Lake, and it's going to scatter an enormous amount of radioactivity over 124 square kilometers, uh, stretching down into northern Alberta and over into northern Saskatchewan as well. So it didn't just affect the Northwest Territories. It's, it's affecting my now adoptive province of Alberta. In Ottawa, there are urgent questions coming from Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who is the current Prime Minister's father. So Justin Trudeau's father. And he's wondering, why wasn't there more warning? Did the Americans know something and they were holding back on their end of NORAD? Who's cleaning up this giant mess, right? It's, it's affecting a, a large area of our territory and affecting the people that live there. So this satellite was actually a maritime satellite to help with navigation. And it's launched on September 18th, 1977. NORAD computers right away noticed that there is a decay in the orbit uh, the Soviets aren't really given much information. It's powered by a tiny nuclear reactor. Uh, because of the radiation risk, the Soviets uh, soon admit that uh, the satellite's out of control, but that's all the details they give our governments. And the satellite was designed to eject its re reactor core in a higher orbit in case of an emergency, but this feature failed to do its job. And so when the satellite crashes, it still has the It's full payload on board. Yeah. yeah. So once the crash occurs, we, we uh, our two countries, end up having a joint cleanup effort called Operation Morning Light, and it's going to run until October 1978. So uh, want to guess how much of the radioactive power source was recovered? Half? Oh, I wish I could say that it was half. Oh, it's, 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 it's much, way less. Much, much, much lower. Only 0.1%, actually. So that's a big problem. That's 99.9% .9 that did not get recovered. Yeah. Uh, Canada's going to, you know, ask, of course, because Canada's, we're so nice. We're too polite. Yes. We, we don't demand anything of the Soviet Union. We ask politely that they pay us an estimated $15 million, which is now the equivalent of just over uh, $599 million if we were going to calculate for inflation. The mm -hmm. Soviets are only going to pay about $3 million. They're like, take it or leave it. Best I could do is three million. Best I can do is three million. We're gonna go to Pawn Stars. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> the crash and cleanup's gonna cause international policy questions about the use of radioactive materials in space. The United States is going to request that countries prohibit satellites containing radioactive material from orbiting the Earth. 
This is going to be followed by Canada and other countries in Europe. Uh, in November 1978, the United Nations is going to authorize its Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space to set up a working group to study nuclear-powered satellites. Despite this commitment and this committee being set up and policies being adjusted over the years uh, for NPS, nuclear power sources in space, we have no legally binding policies at the moment. So that's really comforting. So somebody could, in theory, if they wanted to, put yep. one of these in orbit. Yeah, they have made... Uh, they have stated when I looked on the uh, United Nations website that you can use nuclear power sources to get to other planets. So, of course, as we go and explore Mars and things like that, the ability to have nuclear power sources on those spacecrafts is feasible. And they're talking about spacecrafts going to the moon, satellites or, or craft that are orbiting the Earth itself. There's actually no legally binding law or policy that states they, they can't use nuclear power sources. Yeah, you'd almost have to for something like Mars or whatever, I would think. I mean, I know we have like a Mars rover there now, but I could see the benefits of using a nuclear powered ship of some kind right. to get to these further destinations to Jap mm, uh, Jupiter or Saturn or something like that. Or Pluto, if it's a planet this year, because I don't know, they change, they flip flop on that. You know, I don't poor Pluto. I mean, we love you, Pluto. If you're listening to us on Pluto. Follow us on Instagram at Time Machine with Trish and Mike. We'd we'd love to hear from you. Pluto's always a planet in my heart. Yes, I grew up with it being a planet, so it's a planet to me. Yep. Just no saying. one can take it away. I don't but care yeah. what I don't care what NASA says. Pluto's a planet. It's, it's uh, also Mickey's favorite dog. True. So you know, there's that. Yes. Yes, there is that. One other thing we do have anniversary-wise coming up that's not really a not pleasant lessons. one uh, to to mention is, and it's more so one of these, it's hard to believe this has been a year, but on January 26th, just after 9 a.m., there was an infamous helicopter crash in Calabasas, California that unfortunately claimed the life of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and six other passengers, as well as the pilot. Yeah, isn't that hard to believe that it was just a year ago? <sighs> It's it really, is. really hard. Like, in some ways, it seems like it was six months ago. And in some ways, it seems like it was six years ago because of everything that happened in 2020. And um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the sports world and, and really America, and I would imagine Canada as well, mm -hmm. was just in shock because of this. And yeah, anytime you have someone who's just very influential, right? significant in sports history or just I, and it's not pop only culture. just that he was a famous yeah. person in pop culture but like the idea that it's a father and a daughter just so tragic at the beginning of a year that held so much potential right? yeah that's absolutely. what i think is the most yeah and crazy as that was and as surreal as that was we had no idea what the rest of 2020 that was, was going to bring us right that was that was the appetizer if you will, yeah. to a very interesting year. And as we go through this first season of the time machine with Trish and Mike, we're going to come across some fun anniversaries from 2020 that are going to be um, interesting. I think it'll be jarring. Be like, it'll be like, Hey, remember yeah. when? Yeah. Right? Like, like at this point a year ago, you know, COVID is starting to become a thing. It's not really a major 
issue here yet in America. I don't believe it was yet in Canada. For for me, the only reason it was more significant is uh, my brother works for the Canadian government and is living over in China. And so we were getting reports that he and his wife were going to be, um, and a a bunch of the other officials were going to be evacuated out. So for us, it was like, oh, okay. But it was still contained to China. It wasn't this big the global thing. issue yeah. that it would have would go on to become. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. You know, we're at this point a year ago, we're still all going about our lives as normal. Yeah. We're not. In fact, in fact, the day that you know Kobe's accident happened, I was at Disney. I was right. literally I was out there with my friend Sammy, and we were about to walk in to take. Honest, this is honest truth. We were going into the building to go take a picture with Mickey Mouse Aww. when I got the alert on my phone that uh, that. That Kobe had had passed away in the accident. At that point, we didn't know who else was on the helicopter. Right. You know, it took you know a little while for some of the details to come out. Well, I'm really but, thankful that. I mean, it could have been so much worse. Like if they had crashed somewhere more populated. You know what I mean? Or crashed into a home or something. Right. You know, yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, we've seen stuff like that happen. You know, sometimes yeah. with planes or helicopters crashing into residential areas. Yeah. In fact, you know, speaking of yeah. B-52s crashing here in Orlando by the airport because the Orlando Air National Airport was originally McCoy Air Force Base, which is why the airport code for Orlando is MCO. Like you would think it would be like ORL or something like that. And it's MCO because of McCoy Air Force Base, because that was the base there. And there's an area not too far that's a little bit north of the airport where a B-52 back in the 70s crashed into a neighborhood and unfortunately did kill a few people. As well as people on board. Yeah. See, and those things are just so, like, you just think of, like, one moment or, like, one directional change and, like, where could it have landed, you know? Yeah. History's full of what ifs. History is full of what ifs and a lot more interesting things to come on the time machine. Well, and the uh, one I, we can end on a nice note because it's also the yeah. anniversary, right, Let's of a because... very famous space vehicle. Ah, true. Involving time travel at that. Involving time travel. I mean, we, you know, we tried to secure the rights and all, but it just, it was too expensive. Yes. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, 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 we could not get the, the infamous vehicle used for time travel in a three-part cinematic adventure starring Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Yep. Which is the... dun dun dun, dun. Do we I have the rights? <laughs> I, I I do not want to uh, to anger the the incur the wrath of the DeLorean Motor Company. Oops, did we say the oh, name? We said the name. Loud? We gave. Credit. I think I did. Ah, the the yeah. yeah. January twenty first, nineteen eighty one. It's going to go into uh, production in uh, Dummery, Northern Ireland, UK, and becomes infamous just really a few years later. Because Back to the Future, right. the first one came out in 85, right? I thought it was 85. 80, I believe it was 85. Let me see. I'll do a quick googly Google. Yeah, 85. You were right. Right on the money. Okay. Well, I think that's about going to do it on this adventure of the Time Machine. Yeah. We thank you for listening. And we thank you for making it to the end of the episode. And if you didn't, well, I hope that when you go to change the channel next time, the batteries in your remote control are dead. Oh. Evil, Mike. Dastardly evil. (laughs) Get up and change the channel and get batteries. Oh, wait, you forgot to buy some at the store. Now 
Now what you going to do? Maybe you're going to make it to the end of our episode next time. And good things will happen yeah. to you. Because you're going to drive to that store and your car is going to be on empty. Oh. Oof. <laughs> but they can listen to our show while they're waiting for gas. Very true. And learn their lesson. Yes. Do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that don't note. forget to like and subscribe, guys. Uh, you can find us also on Instagram and uh, let us know questions, concerns, queries, or freakouts, as I tell my students. That is a excellent uh, verbiage on which you have just unleashed upon us. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, follow us on Instagram at Time Machine with Trish and Mike, uh, and make sure, as Trish said, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. That would be really appreciated by us. It helps us. You know, we're still a a new show. It's still growing. We thank you for listening. But if you leave a review, you know, hopefully five stars, maybe, you know, it would be nice. I'll take four. Five is better. Let's the podcast companies know, hey, this show's kind of cool. Maybe people might listen to it and it kind of gets it out there into the universe so people can listen to us on Pluto. Exactly. All right. With that being said, have a great week, and we'll see you next week here on the Time Machine.